prepare to experience the strongest radio allowable by law. Secrets will be revealed. Myths dispelled. From the studio gym where excuses never apply. It's Superhuman Radio with your host, Carl Lenore. Hey, hey, welcome back to another episode of Superhuman Radio. Today is September 9th, 2019, and we are doing this show under the heading of uh, dispelling or busting some myths. There are certain myths that just perpetuate. They just keep coming back around over and over again, and they frustrate the hell out of me because, you know, I kind of feel like you have to build on knowledge in order to go further. And if we keep repeating these other things over and over again, it's like we're at a standstill. And since this is nutrition-related, I thought, uh, who better to have on the show uh, than Dr. Jose Antonio uh, of the Inter- International uh, Society of Sports Nutritionists? How you doing, Dr. Antonio? I, you know, I am doing great. I'm in South Florida. The weather's beautiful. Uh, you know, I can't complain. We're in paradise down here. Yeah, no, I know. I know. <laughs> I was just in Boca not too long ago. It's just, it really is beautiful in, para- in, in, in Florida. I said, I, I, that was a Freudian slip. I said, it really is beautiful in paradise. And then I had to go back to Florida. Um, so, you know, you deal with um, a much higher level of individual within your association. These are people who already have basic fundamental uh, knowledge uh, of, of nutrition in general. And and even more advanced than the average nutritionist, because uh, your 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 style of nutrition is is highly goal oriented nutrition. How nutrition affects the body in certain ways, and you have to get frustrated too sometimes, or it has to. Or do you just ignore it when you see these <laughs> myths perpetuated? Do you, do you even jump in and say anything anymore? Do you just go, oh, I, you can't change the world? You know what's 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 funny is that. Uh Going back to, and I'm sure you're a bit of a history buff. Uh, first time I heard that protein was bad for you, and I'm going to uh, focus at least initially on the protein is bad for your kidneys because that's yeah. what we hear a lot of. Right. Was uh, back in my undergraduate days at the American University, and this was when Ronald Reagan was president. <laughs> so just think of that. How long Ron- ago? I'm- <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so today's kids don't. Even, they're like, who's Ronald Reagan? So. <laughs> That's right. how long ago it was, right. and I remember her saying, basically that you know uh, all this protein that bodybuilders consume, it's bad for you, et cetera, et cetera. Despite the fact that I was still a dumb college student, but at the same time, I had one of my uh, uncles was a bodybuilder, and I watched him consume a lot of protein, and he sure seemed healthy to me. I didn't see anything wrong, and I, and just sort of just by observing people, you're like, okay. There's a clear disconnect between what athletes are doing and what clinical nutritionists are saying, and only one of them is right. And and I cited it in my very naive way. I'm like, well, my uncle's in great shape. He's healthy. He eats a lot of protein. I think protein's fine. And and and, and in addition to that, the fact that there just wasn't any data that showed it's harmful. So so that's you know a little bit of history lesson. It goes way back when, but. In answer to your question, I actually find it sort of amusing at times, kind of frustrating. But in a way, this is what makes this category interesting is that you really have a lot of idiots out there. Yeah. You really do. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I'll send posts to my friend. I'm like, hey, look what this person's saying. They actually, do they actually believe this? And at the end of the day, you're, you're like, wow, they actually do believe this. Yes. And that's what's so funny. It's, 
it's like flat earth society and Bigfoot combined, but it's in nutrition. So, um, it's frustrating a little bit, but I, you know, I, I get a good laugh out of it. I really do. And, and if see, you want to find part, and see, part of the problem, since you said historian, part of the problem is that we don't, on average, in any capacity in our lives, build on what we already know. Um, you know, when we look at nutrition in general, um, we really don't know anything about three or four hundred years ago. How, or even leading up into the agrarian eras, like you know. It, it took the whole paleo movement to start to go, hey, wait a minute, maybe we ate different back then. And, <clears throat> excuse me, um, when you look at the fathers of physical culture, the guys who, you know, Bernard McFadden and, and even uh, Eugene Sandow, who was nominated to have a role in, uh, in the British government overseeing health above and beyond doctors. That really pissed the doctors off because they were like, he knows about health. Look at this guy. Um, we, they knew that nutrition played a, a large role in health, longevity, and strength. And so much so, I jokingly say, you know, the, the, the guards that, that guard the king and queen of England are called beef eaters for a reason. It's not because they drink beef eaters gin. It's because they fed these guys <laughs> beef to keep them big and strong so that they could defend the castle. Right, right, I mean, it's exactly. Just silly. No, it is. And, and, and probably, you know, the frustrating part on my end is, is not what I call the social media experts. You know, everyone's now an expert because they have access to Google. It's really the people who should know better. These are the trained people with master's degrees in nutrition um, who are oftentimes the ones who are most guilty of saying, hey, you know, if you eat too much protein, it's bad for you. I mean, I could go on Instagram and I could easily find someone with a master's degree in nutrition telling us how you know, we need to eat more plants because eating too much meat is bad for you. It's bad for your kidneys. And it's just horseshit. Can I say that? Yeah, you can. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a, that's a, an, an, an easy word. That's, that's no big deal. Okay. Yeah. That's not one of those seven dirty words. Yeah, no, Carlin. no, that Carlin talks about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You and I know the seven dirty words. I know. Words I, was just think, I was just thinking that. It's like, oh, my God, are we getting to that point where we say jokes and no one knows what it means because they're, they're too we young. Are. Yeah, they're too young. <laughs> we are. Yeah. So, um, okay, so let's start dispelling these. And let's get this one first because this is the one that I see over and over again. Uh, and I, I shared with you off the air. I posted a picture of a protein drink, and I said, you know, this is my whole meal, 70 grams of protein, and someone put, uh, isn't that too much protein? Uh, you can't digest. And they didn't ask the question. They said it authoritatively. They said, you really can't digest more than 30 grams of protein in a meal. And I've heard this over the years so many times that it makes my head want to explode. So hit, <laughs> let's hit that one first. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. There's, there's so many aspects to this that's actually interesting. So 70 grams, how many calories? That that's three hundred. Am I doing my math? Three hundred twenty calories. Yeah. Roughly? Well, there was some fat in it, but it, it, was, okay. it was it was actually a five hundred calorie drink. But yeah. okay, so so it's actually a rather small meal when you think of it in terms of total calories. It's a small meal. Okay, so so that's number one. Number two. Okay, seventy grams. Let's let's first address the you can't consume or is it you can't absorb more than thirty ish or forty grams. Right. right. I'm gonna I'm gonna backtrack a little and talk a little, little bit about evolutionary biology and so sort of stay with me a little okay. if you remember before the the agricultural revolution that was about ten thousand years ago humans were basically nomadic hunters right. they they hunt they kill they ate they eat 
<clears throat> so there were periods of obviously uh, starvation and periods of eating a lot, periods of gluttony or gorging. So imagine you have not consumed food for a day, maybe two. You are hungry as hell. So you and your caveman buddies go out hunting. You kill a deer. You think one guy said to the other, hey, you know what? Don't eat more than 30 grams because your body can't handle it. No, you're starving. The human body has this amazing ability that if you're starving, you're going to eat a hell of a lot more than 30 grams of protein. Why? Because your body will always utilize it. And I think that's the issue. People, Utilization. they always, yeah, it's it's question of utilization. You will use more than 30. Hell, you, you probably would use more than 100 depending on the size of your body. Now, does it all go to muscle building? And, and I think this is where things get really fuzzy because – in our category, even the sports nutrition scientists tend to view this as a bodybuilding issue when, in fact, there's X amount of protein that can be used for gaining lean mass, but the rest of it could still be oxidized as fuel. Your body will use it. It's not like, you know, as you were saying, if you ate like a 16-ounce steak, are you going to crap out? The yeah, you know, that, 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 that's exactly. So I'm crude and I'm a critical thinker. And I I'm automatically come back with, well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever eaten a pound of steak? Yes, I have. Have you ever <laughs> crapped out whole undigested steak? No, I haven't. So then your body is using it somehow, right? <laughs> yeah. That's too obvious. <laughs> so, and, and now, but there's, but let's stay with this for a second. So, protein can be used as an energy substrate, correct? Yes. Okay. So, your body will use that as energy. Uh, protein also can be used for other types of tissue repair besides muscle, right? Well, yeah, I think people tend to forget if you were to remove water and fat from your body, your body's basically all protein, whether it's in your brain, in your organs, in your skin. It's it's not just skeletal muscle because people always focus on muscle when, in fact, the rest of your body has to generate protein, whether it's in blood, whether it's in enzymes, whether it's regulatory proteins. It's not all skeletal muscle. And I think I think there's the bodybuilding industry, I think, has been good in terms of saying you know, we need more protein, particularly if you're training. But at the same time, it has really, it kind of gives a warped view of what protein does because it does so many things besides contributing amino acids for gaining lean mass. I mean, that's not the end all and be all to athletics. In fact, you could argue that endurance athletes might need more because they beat the hell out of their bodies probably more so than people who lift. I mean, imagine someone who, who is running 100, 120 miles a week. That body's getting beat. I mean, right. just to recover, they probably would might might need more protein than someone who just lifts. So, so let's let's underscore this discussion for a second, and then we're going to move on to something that's actually quite tangential to this. So, really, where this whole thirty gram or forty gram number came from was the the peak protein synthetic response from a single dose of protein and correct me if i'm wrong but i can't think of who i don't know if it was don lyman's group but or layman i don't know how you pronounce his last name up in, in illinois yeah um but someone did a study where they said 15 grams of protein we see this protein reset uh, uh, response a uh, synthetic response 20 25 30 35 40 and they said oh once we got to 40 really having 50 or 60 or 70 didn't really signal mTOR any greater degree. So the, 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 the lowest effective dose is 40 grams or 30 grams. Isn't that where that number came from originally? Right. But again, it's focusing on the muscle protein synthetic response, oh. meaning, 
okay, so is that all protein does for your body? We're just muscle protein synthesis? What about the rest of your body? And I think that's what's confusing to people because they tend to, again, look at everything through bodybuilding when, in fact, there's a whole world out there in terms of nutrition and what your body needs besides pure bodybuilding. Now, you know, so, you know, so when people say, well, if I eat 100 grams, well, then clearly I'm wasting 60 grams. No, you're still, you're still utilizing the 60. And, in fact, this is what's interesting, and I know you're well aware of this. When you look at the nutrition, the typical nutrition advice, um, if you if you look at the three macros, uh, carbs, fat, protein, why is it that people are so bent on in terms of limiting protein? They're like, you hit protein, that's it. Stop right there. But you don't see the same attitude towards carbs and fat. It's always protein, which always which I always found really odd because when you think about it. How many, how many people expend so much energy that they need to consume a lot of carbs? Maybe a few distance cyclists, maybe a few distance runners, but the average person working out, they don't expend enough energy to matter. I mean, if you go to the gym and lift for 45 minutes to an hour, you're really not expending that much energy. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're, you'll glycogen deplete a little bit, but a regular diet will replace that. So when you think about it, there are very few athletes that need this high-carb diet. And when I say high-carb, we're talking 65 or 70% carbs. Most people actually should err on the side of getting more protein and then backfilling their diet on carbs and fat because right. most of us don't expend enough energy. Yeah, that's a great point. I actually think this comes from back in the day, thousands of years ago, when feeding populations were difficult. And so, you know, grains and bread became storage food. It became, uh, it'll keep you alive, but you're not going to thrive on it. And protein right. was harder to come by, but protein was fed to the, the, the armies to keep the, the, these guys who are doing battle strong and healthy and robust. And so I, I really think that's where somehow the, the idea that, oh, too much protein is no good, because I think there was a message from the ruling class that, uh, you know, only we elite get the protein. You guys eat bread. I mean, look at our prayers. Give us our right. daily bread. It's like nobody right. said give us our daily beef and bread because, <laughs> because we were paupers. We were poor. All we had was bread. No, so. you're absolutely right. Protein is, is expensive. And for and you think about for the mass, vast majority of human history, once we figured out how to grow plants, it's like, okay, we can eat plants now because we don't have to move around. It's a lot more difficult to chase an animal down and kill it than it is to right figure out how to grow plants. So yeah, I think there's that there's that economic issue that, you know, that mas- that massages this debate. Yes. So now we go right to the next topic. So there are lots of people out there who are now vegan athletes and they're saying, "Hey, plant protein is just as effective. You've got soy has uh, has a high leucine, you have pea protein has fairly high leucine, but none of the plant protein seem to have the complete amino acid profile that say dairy eggs or or fish or meat have so is is um a plant protein as effective as qu- high quality as animal based proteins in your opinion yeah there's there's a couple ways to look at this one when you look at some of the and again focus on muscle protein synthesis when you look at the studies comparing plant-based proteins and usually it's soy uh versus usually milk-based protein so usually whey protein Head-to-head whey protein does better than soy. Okay, so that's one thing. And again, we're looking at acute studies. However, humans don't just eat one meal a day. They eat multiple meals a day. So when you look at total protein intake, if you're on what I call a low-protein diet, and to me, low is anything, and again, my low is probably 
what some people's high is, but my low is anything below 1.75. If you're less than 1.75 grams per kilo, protein quality matters a lot. And I think that's where most people are. However, if you're on a high protein diet, let's say it's over a, it's over a gram per pound or 2.2 grams per kilo, because you're eating such a large volume of protein, you can actually mess around with using lower quality protein. Why? Because you're just making up for it with volume. And in mm-hmm. fact, the uh, we, we did a two-year follow-up of bodybuilders eating up to 3.5 grams per day of protein. And a lot of it came from different sources. I mean, really the main source was actually shakes. They would just consume a lot of yeah. shakes. So, yeah. so a lot of it is if you're on the low end of protein intake, quality matters. If you're just consuming a gob of protein, well, you're just making up for it just because you have so much volume going on. So the, so if you're, if you're mixing your protein sources, then plant protein probably isn't a big issue, especially if you're doing that in concert with eating a relatively high protein diet, higher than the RDA of 60 grams a day. So then mixing your protein sources is good. But if you're strictly a vegan and all you're eating is plant protein. Uh, do you think it's as effective if that's all it's, you're eating is plant protein? I think it, you know, and I it, it put it this way. Is it doable? Yes. Is it difficult? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had, uh, I'd say, hundreds of athletes come through our lab, and I'd say we had one vegan bodybuilder, okay? So for him, clearly protein's an issue. And the only way he hits his protein intake is by consuming like half dozen shakes a day i mean a half dozen but these are are these plant protein based shakes yes, as well plant. Yeah. These, okay. yeah and so that's the only thing that if, if he didn't do any shakes I, i'm not sure how you would do it with food and if you did it with food you'd probably get fat because yeah now it's you, a lot you got to eat a lot of food. a lot of calories yeah so i mean uh, people ask me is it doable i'm like yeah it's doable i mean anything is doable to a point i don't know if it's recommended but it's doable yeah which leads us to this th- th- third discussion, uh, which is, so we look at protein for its uh, ability to build muscle and energize our bodies, but what we also forget is that um, protein donates amino acids, and amino acids are the uh, words, if you will, uh, of a very unique vocabulary called peptides, and these peptides are produced by the endoplasmic reticulum, in each cell as kind of like the telegraph office so that one cell can communicate with the other cell. And the cells produce uh, growth hormone, as in the case of pituitary cells, and, and all these other really wonderful peptides that seem to now, we understand, contribute to health and longevity. Right. And so if you're eating a strictly plant-based diet and you are n- restricting some of these amino acids, they just don't appear. The, the, the analogy I gave off the air was it's tantamount to like if you're typesetting a book and you don't have the word and, it's going to be really hard to make sentences that make sense uh, and, and because you just don't have the ability for syntax and, and, and so on. And so we need to think about proteins also for this, this extrinsic value of creating the, the, the vocabulary that is our peptide uh, development. What do you think about that concept? I mean, I think um, if you're if you're if you're on the low end of protein intake, what will likely happen is your body is going to prioritize what it needs, and the last thing it needs is large muscles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so right. it'll it would probably go to formation of peptides, particularly peptide hormones, because you need those. Whereas 
you know, you don't need a gob of skeletal muscle to be alive. You just need enough to move around. So the body's not dumb. It figures out what's most important for it and what's the least important. And oddly enough, for bodybuilding, you know, putting on lean body mass or skeletal muscle is probably one of the lesser important yeah, things for meta, the human meta, body. Yeah, that's a very metabolically expensive thing to do from an evolutionary perspective. You're right. It's uh, And in fact, you know, the human animal is really built to be an endurance animal because – if you're a 250-pound bodybuilder, you're not catching a single animal. You would, like, be tired in about, like, 100 meters mm-hmm. <laughs> and end up starving to death eventually unless you lose weight or something. Right. right. But, right. yeah, it's uh, evolutionarily, it's putting on skeletal muscle is not an advantage per se. What about uh, the uh, premise that uh, eating too much protein acidifies the body and leaches minerals from the bones because the body has to adjust the pH of the sear- the blood so it, it steals minerals from the bones. Yeah, that you know what? That's just such total baloney. And in fact, cross-sectional data. Again, we've dexed probably 300 athletes, of which almost all of them are consuming a pretty high-protein diet. Their bone mineral density is crazy high. Okay, And people say, okay, that's a cross-sectional study. You're just making an observation. What if you actually just got people and had them consume a high-protein diet? And we did that actually with women. Because it's always women that, you know, you're worried about bone mineral density. Right. Right. So we actually got exercise-trained women. And over the course of the they consumed about 2.3 grams per kilo. So about more, a little bit more than a gram per pound, which most people would say, that's pretty high. Yeah. And we measured bone mineral density at, at baseline, at six months, and at one year. <laughs> Nothing happened. Of course, I mean, here's the thing. And this is sort of a weird frustration on my part. I'm doing these studies, and I'm like, I know nothing's going to happen. This is just stupid. Yeah, why but am I doing don't this? Be- yeah. Right, but people still don't believe it. I know. In fact, and here's the thing. It's like I, you know, the, all the social media experts are like, well, okay, you did it for a year. Maybe you should do it longer. I'm like, what? what a 10-year study? Who's going to volunteer for a 10-year study? I mean, what the hell? You know, so well, you know, and keep- again, it comes back to critical thinking. People fail to think about this. So, you know, they, they, they think that they're adjusting the pH of their body, their tissue in their body, <laughs> by drinking a certain drink. When Stupid. hydrochloric acid is like a one in pH, <laughs> it, it, it will, it like, it would, you know, remember the fly when, what's his name, spit up on the guy's hand and it just melted? I mean, that's hydrochloric <laughs> acid. It lives inside your gut. So do you really think that... Um, special Kangen water you're drinking is really going to have an effect on tissue pH when you're putting it into basically sulfuric acid. Like, come on, give me a break, yeah. please. You know? Yeah, yeah. People forget, you know, how acidic the stomach is. Yeah, and it's acidic for a reason because we eat all sorts of stuff and it needs to digest. Yeah, the more acidic, yeah. in fact, they looked at uh, vultures. So vultures actually have about four times more caustic and acidic uh, types of hydrochloric acid in their guts than mm-hmm. humans do, and that's why they can eat dead stuff and not get <laughs> sick. Because not, nothing lives in there, not even no. microbes. So, you know, yeah. Well, that's the beauty of evolutionary biology. Every animal, sort of, you know, they they're selected for these conditions where, yeah, probably hyenas and vultures. They can eat all the dead stuff. Us, you know, it helps to cook it, eating it raw. Okay, we eat some raw fish. I don't know about like raw chicken or eggs, but yeah. you know, some people do that too. But we are all adapted to eat specific things, and and yeah, this whole acidity causing your bones to leach is just 
It's just a bunch of baloney because there's no data that showed that eating a lot of protein causes bone mineral density to drop. And in fact, if anything, keeping protein intake high will maintain higher bone mineral density. At least that's what some reviews and some meta-analyses suggest. Well, so there, and I'm going to put uh, Robbie Stahl's question up, and he did correct the use of his word there. He says, is there any circumstances that you see protein negatively affecting bone density? And I was going to say, extrinsically, if you increase muscle size and strength, the body automatically upregulates the thickness of bone to accommodate the sheer force of these muscles. We know this. That's why women who squat, you know, with weight on their back actually have a better response to bone mineralization than taking one of these uh, caustic drugs that they give out now, these uh, uh, phosphate-related drugs that actually rots their jawbone over time. So loading actually signals the body to get the bone, the, the chassis, to get stronger. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, let me add to that because uh, it's an interesting question. Um, think, think of the population that would purposely consume a higher protein diet. They tend to be, not they tend to be, they're almost always are just athletes. These are people who work out. Right. You know, some, some fat guy who, you, you know, shops at Walmart, you know, twice a week. You think he's shopping for like the best protein sources? No, he just wants to eat junk. So the people who purposely choose to do this one work out. And more often than not, these people are working out in a manner that is going to increase bone mineral density in the way you just said it. I mean, just by putting compressive force or tensile force uh, from muscles to bone will increase bone mineral density. So in a way, you can't separate the exercise part from the high protein intake because it's the same people. Right. I don't know anyone who like – in fact, this is sort of a, uh, a question that I would pose to anyone – are there sedentary people, you know, people who don't work out who like, you know what? I think I'm going to have a whey, po- whey protein shake today. <laughs> no. Nobody. No. It's only people who train. So in a way, you can't separate the training and the protein because they go hand in hand. And that's why when people say, are there any conditions where a high protein intake would negatively influence bone? The answer to that is not only no, it's hell no. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. I want to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, I have questions about optimal protein intake. I know you've done lots of studies on different levels of protein uh, per pound or per kilo of body weight and the outcomes in these athletes. Because I want to then juxtapose that to do these same things happen if you're in a caloric deficit at the same time that you're eating massive amounts of protein. We're talking with Dr. Jose Antonio. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. You already know the benefits of red light therapy. Now you have to find the strongest, best one out there at the best price, right? That's where Scott Chevery found himself. He had to create Mito Red Light so you can get the strongest, best red light therapy unit in the world at the absolute best price. And the Superhuman Nation gets an additional discount. Go to MitoRedLight.com and use code SHR to get the lowest price anywhere, plus free shipping inside the USA and deeply discounted shipping worldwide. Go to 
MitoRedLight.com and use code SHR today. That's M-I-T-O-R-E-D-L-I-G-H-T.com. Are you still on the fence about body protection complex BPC Oral from DrSeeds.com? Listen to Maggie Kuhn, one of the owners of the C-Bus Lifting Company, Jim, in Columbus, Ohio. I had been having some nagging tendon issues that weren't injuries, just, just things that were annoying. You know, I'm 58 years old, so just older tendon kind of issues. For us powerlifters, you know, we really don't stop training when we have just nagging issues. We just kind of keep pushing through. And I started the BPC. What I noticed was I was doing some heavy tricep stuff that um, that would have killed me um, before when I had an elbow problem, and I was able to do this with literally no pain at all. Go to DrSeeds.com, D-R-S-E-E-D-S.com. Use coupon code SHR and save 20% off your bottle of BPC Body Protection Complex today. Whether your goal is to build muscle or burn fat, you'll find everything you need at Redcon 1. Need help getting a good night's sleep? Try Fade Out or the most popular pre-workout supplement on the market today, Total War. Sign up for their new transformation challenge and win $10,000 or shop for apparel that people at the gym will know that you are serious about your training. Need a testosterone booster that works? Check out Boomstick. Whatever you need, you'll find the best quality supplements on the market at Redcon 1. Go to redcon1.com. That's R-E-D-C-O-N, the number one, dot com, or go to superhumanradio.net and click the Redcon 1 banner ad today. Men and women, you've heard about hormone optimization. Do you feel like it's something you want to look into? RenewLifeRx.com is the place to start. Their doctors can help you with the solutions. RenewLifeRx.com has a simple process for lab work, consultation, and taking a deep dive into where your hormone levels can be improved. Superhuman Radio listeners get 30% off your initial lab work and consultation. Go to RenewLifeRx.com to schedule your no-obligation phone consultation today. Feel younger, get in better shape, and be more productive. Productive at RenewLifeRx.com. Hey, this is Carl. For 14 years, you've heard me talk about Can-See Eye Drops, and they being the reason that I do not need reading glasses at now 61 years old. But I regularly get emails and messages from people who've been using Can-See and having some amazing results. Recently, I got an email from a fellow named Chad, who, because he was on dexamethasone eye drops for over six months, developed a cataract. Can-See Eye Drops actually reduced my cataract to the point where even my doctor has a hard time finding it. I will never stop using Cansey eye drops twice a day. I've been using them since 2008, he says. And you should be too. There is no better way to keep your eyes healthy and seeing clearly than Cansey eye drops. Go to wisechoicemedicine.com today and get on board and we will both be looking into the future with very... This is the Superhuman Channel. Doing reps with the weight of the world. We're talking today with Dr. Jose Antonio. The website, well, there's a couple ways to get to the website. Tell, tell me the shortened version. You have a short Yeah, the, the short version for people who have, uh, like, no memories like me would be ISSN.net, ISSN.net. Yeah, and, and now, can, can anybody join ISSN, or do you have to really be a sports nutritionist? Actually, what the beauty of ISSN is we're, we're might be the only science organization where Anyone can join and anyone can come to the conference. You don't even have to be a scientist. In fact, I'd say 5% of our audience are just people who it's sort of their hobby. They don't know anything about science, but they like hearing about sports nutrition and some sports, uh, sports science. Sports nutrition is really interesting. We don't consider the effects of what we eat. And, I, and I'm living proof of this 10 years after I was you know, 330 pounds. And that was a gradual 
change over 10 years that I didn't think much about, but I was consistent and committed to eating that way for 10 years. And then all of a sudden when you put your brain into it and you start looking at sports nutrition, you go, oh, so I can eat this way for the next 10 years and be a ripped muscular person. And the first one you don't think about, but you do it every day with consistent commitment. You know, it's just really it's amazing. Yeah, it's and I always say, given the choice between changing exercise and changing eating or diet, exercise is a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh. changing how you eat is inordinately difficult. You know, but in a way, the way you describe it, the solution is simple, but it's hard to do. But it's actually simple. Yeah. Yeah, you just do a little bit every day. So let's talk about what you've learned over numerous studies that you've published that look at different degrees of protein intake in trained individuals. What gets the best response? What gets the most muscle? What gets you the leanest at the same time? Okay, there's a, there's so there's two issues. Let's see what would affect gains in lean body mass and what could affect fat mass. So, you know, total body composition. At least based on our data, um, what we what we are seeing is that, and, and this is where bodybuilders were right. One gram per pound seems to be that sweet spot where most people will get pretty good gains in lean body mass if they're training hard. So what happens above and beyond that? Well, we don't see an increase in lean body mass, but what you might see is a, is a drop in fat mass. So it's not like you know if you're focused just on bodybuilding, okay, and you don't care about losing fat, you know you can stick to your two point two grams per kilo. But most athletes, whether it's a football player, a basketball player, someone who plays soccer or lacrosse, they're interested probably in both and maybe more so in losing fat mass because let's face it, unless you're in a, sport, in a position, let's say in football, where having mass is important, most athletes actually don't want to gain muscle mass because it's just extra weight. I mean, right. if you're a wide receiver in the NFL, you want, you want to be fast, among other things. And gaining lean mass may not necessarily get you there. So you're training for speed, but you also want to be lean. And that's where maybe a higher protein intake might, might help quite a bit. And there's a lot of sports where, and again, bodybuilders don't understand this, but there's a lot of sports where you actually don't even want to gain weight. But you would want to lose fat mass because you're just going to be quicker on your feet and you'll be faster. So roughly about a gram per pound, good for lean mass. Anything above and beyond that seems to be good for promoting a loss of fat mass. Okay, so... Theoretically, if I were to be in a slight caloric deficit of, say, a couple hundred calories a day, but all I'm eating is protein first and some carbs, maybe not a lot of carbs, but let's say I'm, I'm a low-carb guy, I'm 100 grams or less, and some fat. But all in all, let's say I'm eating close to two grams of protein per pound of body weight, even though I'm in a caloric deficit. Would I see continued muscle gains even though I'm in a caloric deficit? That would be, you know what? That's an interesting question. I think as long as you keep protein intake fairly high, and I, I would even jump it a little higher, I still think you would be able to gain muscle mass, but it wouldn't be optimal because you're still dealing with a calorie issue. So to me, if you want to gain skeletal muscle mass, it's calories, then protein. However, you can still gain on a slight caloric deficit if protein intake is high enough. It's just not optimal. Okay. So, okay. Um, yeah, and th you know what? Those like to do a study like that is, is fairly difficult because there's not many people who are disciplined enough to train really hard, but also be in a caloric deficit. Yeah. I mean, you, you almost got to get pro athletes 
And oftentimes they don't want to be in a study. So you're dealing with, you know, more recreational athletes. So what about um, the uh, the notion of uh, one pound, uh, two pounds, one one gram per pound, and so on? These these metrics that we come up with. Well, you want to have, you know, the sweet spot is one gram of protein per pound of body weight. No one ever says lean body weight. Everybody ever sa- always says body weight. Isn't that different for someone who's carrying a lot of fat mass? Should they really be eating one gram per pound? Yeah, well, here's the thing. If you're carrying a lot of fat and you're eating one gram per pound of protein, that extra protein may actually help you lose fat. Yeah, mass. good point. This, yeah, the second issue, I think, is one of convenience because there's a lot of people – you know, who have criticized my study saying, okay, you're doing, you know, whatever, 2.2 grams per kilo or whatnot, um, rather than per lean body mass. And I think part of that is, in the real world, not many people can get accurate body composition assessments. So typically, we all know our weight, but do we really know our lean body mass? Probably not. So as a matter of convenience, I think it's, it's best to stick per body weight, just because it's what everyone can relate to. Yeah, and, and you're right. As I was asking the question, I was thinking, well, if you are actually more body fat, you're just eating a higher amount of protein per, lean, per pound of lean body mass, which probably would help you get leaner faster anyway from your yeah. findings. Exactly, exactly, yeah. So um, are there any frustrating myths about protein that, that come to the top of your head that we haven't covered? Well, I think uh, the, the key ones is it doesn't harm your kidneys, it doesn't harm your bones. We did a – because we've done a series of about half a dozen studies on high-protein intakes. And the last one I think you'll find intriguing. Um, what we did was we got a bunch of exercise-trained men and women. So these are fairly good athletes. And we put them on a caloric deficit of about 20%. So they had to cut their calories by 20%, and they did it for four weeks. And you're like, okay, well, that's pretty mundane. But what we did is we genotyped them. Uh, there's a gene called the FTO gene or the fat mass and obesity-associated gene. The FTO gene is something that helps regulate how much fat mass you carry, in part related to a whole host of things, but let's focus on one thing, satiety. Mm. There are certain there are people who are very good at knowing when they're full. You know, they eat, and they're like, okay, I'm full, I'll stop. And then, there are other people who, like me, if I go to a buffet, even if I know I'm full, I keep eating because I just like to eat, right? <laughs> so, so there are people who, <laughs> see, that's just it. There, I have friends who just can stop eating. I'm like, how can you stop eating? The food is good. I just like to eat, you know. So, and and so we separated. Once we got the data, we figured out who who carried the risk, the gene that carried the higher risk, and who didn't have the high risk. Sort of normal risk people, higher risk people. And here's what we found: it doesn't matter if you're high risk or normal risk. If you cut calories and keep protein in, intake high, about two grams per kilo you'll lose fat mass. It doesn't matter. And so people are like, oh, well, then I guess genes don't matter. Well, no, genes matter. But what this study showed is that in the short run, if you cut calories, you'll lose weight. Now, so, so what if we did this for a year? I think what you, would, what you would see is people like you and I who like to eat would end up carrying more fat mass only because we have a harder time regulating satiety. So we can, you and I can do anything for four weeks. We can do it for eight weeks. But if someone said, could you do this for a year? We're like, oh, boy, I, that'd be kind of tough. Right, right. And so we may end up carrying more fat mass than the person's like, yeah, I could do this for a year. I mean, I can say, I can push the plate away easily. I can regulate. I know when I'm full. Whereas you and I, it's like, yeah, I, I'm sort of full, but I'm going to keep eating. Yeah, right. So, 
Yeah, so genes, what's funny, you can overcome your genetics in the short run. Whether or not you can overcome it in the long run requires quite a bit of willpower. What about this idea that um, that protein is the one macro that the body really, really, really needs? You know, we, we store fat, uh, we can store glycogen, and some people will say, well, muscle is storing protein, but it's really not. It's not a storage form of protein. It's an right. active form of protein. It's We're learning more and more about muscle is actually a gland that produces lots of hormones. But what about this notion that the reason that people overeat who are carb-centric eaters is because their body is trying to get to a level of protein consumption, and they have to eat all these potatoes along with it in order to reach that. And that is why protein and satiety seem to go hand in hand. And overeating, people who eat eat carb-centric diets tend to overeat because they're trying to achieve that same level of protein consumption. Yeah, no, I think, you know, I've, I've heard that as well, and I think there's some merit to it. And I think, I think there's sort of this other side, which might be obvious to you and I, is that even when you're full, it seems like we always have this capacity to eat more carbs and fat. But we don't have this capacity to eat more protein. It's like you go to dinner, you're like, man, I'm really full. Hey, you want another piece of steak? No. Hey, you want some apple pie? Oh, yeah, I could. And it's just. I just, like I just did brain. this last night at Jay Alexander's. I almost had a piece of key lime pie after I said I was so full. I was like, oh, yeah, but I got room for that. <laughs> it's true. It's almost like our brains are wired. Give me high-calorie, hyper-palatable stuff because I don't want to starve to death when, in fact, okay, in today's society, no one's ever going to starve to death. But our brains think so. So it's like, yes, give me that key lime pie. Even though I'm full, I do not want another slice of steak, even though it's really good, but I want key lime pie. Right, right. Yeah, it's amazing. Amazing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what what, what uh, ISN uh, events are coming up soon? Anything coming up soon? Uh, yeah, we have a, uh, one that's fairly soon in October at Coastal Carolina University. Um, you'll see that on the website, ISSN.net. However, I think the big one, which I think, you know, if you ever get a chance, Carl, I think you should go to our national meeting. It's held every June. Uh, next year, it'll be at Daytona Beach, Florida. Beautiful beach. Um, June 18th to 20th. And it's two and a half days of of some great sports nutrition science, some great, uh, we even have some strength and conditioning, some s- pure sports science stuff. Um, you don't have to be a scientist to attend. It's really open to anyone. And it's at Daytona Beach, June 18 to 20 next year. It's a, it, For people who go to science conferences, the one thing they say about ISSN is, one, everyone's friendly and happy, too. Well, pretty much everyone's in great shape. So everyone has this, they're happy to be there. And they just like, it's sort of like this conversation, like to talk about exercise and eating and and drinking beer and, you know, eating Pop-Tarts, you know, and we all have fun with it. We're not, no one takes themselves too seriously right. at ISSM. Right. I want to thank you for being here. I know you have to be off the air by uh, 45, yeah. and it's 43 right now. So I'm, we're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, you won't be here. But I will talk about a blog that I just posted about BPC-157 uh, side injections. I tore hamstring muscle belly uh, a week or so ago, and it's already healed up. So it's pretty impressive stuff. Uh, thanks for being here today. Hey, thanks, Carl. I appreciate it. Talk you have to a you great soon. day. Talk to you soon. All right, stay tuned. We'll be right back.
There's a phenomenon today. So many of us sit for hours each day. Slowly, our bodies respond by shortening certain muscles. The psoas gets shorter and shorter over time. It leads to lower back problems, stiffness when standing, and inhibits your running performance. Now there's psoright.com. That's P-S-O hyphen R-I-T-E dot com. Psoright is a device that allows you to stretch your psoas muscle and return them to normal function. And it does it better than any stretching movement or chiropractic adjustment can. You can use it in your home, office, or at the gym. Experience what thousands of people already know. Check out pso-rite.com and save 20% off when you use the code SHR. Quest Nutrition makes bars, cookies, chips, and pizzas out of complete dairy-based proteins. Our products minimize net carbs and sugar without sacrificing taste. Each delicious chocolate-flavored chip, cookie chunk, and crunchy crumble is custom-made to maintain Quest macros. It's time to enjoy foods that work for you, not against you. It's time to enjoy your Quest. Are you looking for a better way to absorb the nutrients you know you need? Do what I do and start your day with lipospheric supplements from Live On Labs. Unlike pills and powders, Live On's patented liposomal encapsulation technology transports nutrients like vitamin C, vitamin B, glutathione, acetyl-L-carnitine, and alpha-lipoic acid to where they need to be, your cells. Visit try.liveonlabs.com forward slash Carl to learn why I take these supplements every day to help me perform in the gym and in life. That's try.livonlabs.com slash Carl. New Mass Pro Synthogen X2 just upped its own legendary game. To distance itself even further from the rest of the pack, Synthogen X2 now has double the key active ingredients. If you've ever wondered what steroid-like recovery feels like, Synthogen X2 delivers. See why others compare it favorably to powerful bodybuilding drugs at Synthogen.com. Mass Pro Synthogen. When you train with it, you'll gain with it. Who wants to have better sex? That's a stupid question. Everybody wants to have better sex. And you can start having better sex if you go to the website bluechew.com, B-L-U-E-C-H-E-W.com. Use the code SHR and get a free order of your choice of the only two FDA-approved drugs to treat erectile dysfunction, sildenafil or tadalafil. Best of all, they're chewable, so they start to work in minutes. Go to bluechew, B-L-U-E-C-H-E-W.com. Use code SHR and you will get your first order for free. You do have to pay $5 for shipping, but come on, it's an easy deal. Who wants to have better sex? Okay, get busy. You know how to do it. You're listening to the Superhuman Channel. Don't hate us because we feel good. Welcome back. So, you know, peptides are exploding. I can honestly say that I've been toying around with peptides for close to 20 years now. Obviously, it started out with growth hormone, and then after that, it was GHRP6, and then it was IGF-1 long R3. Excuse me. Um, But, like, peptides have moved into the mainstream. People are taking peptides because they have gut issues, because they have autoimmunity issues, because they have Lyme disease. Everybody's taking peptides. I mean, peptides is second to probably CBD oil right now in popularity. And CBD oil is everywhere. I mean, everywhere. It's at farmer's markets. It's in gas stations. It's everywhere. And so, like anything else that explodes into a cottage industry, there are charlatans. In the case of the the peptide industry, is two types of charlatans. The first one are the companies that are buying cheap 
adulterated, crappy peptides from China telling you that they're from the United States, which they're not. In order for these peptides all to be from the United States, these companies would have to have either recombinant technology in-house, which is very expensive, and or they'd have to have amino acid sequencers, which are 10 times very expensive. You know, they're like a million dollars each. Um, and the reality is recombinant technology is not really – it's what we've been using for a very long time. But coming out with a 99% pure peptide through a recombinant technology is, is very difficult and very expensive because – when you use recombinant technology, you're using a form of E. coli, you're feeding it amino acids, it's literally pooping out strands of this peptide. Then you've got to wash the peptides to get the E. coli out. Uh, then you have to mass spec the peptide to see what percentage you've got. You know, I've heard stories that the first go around on recombinant, you're lucky if you get 60 or 70% of the peptide. So then what you do is you you have to wash it again, and then you have to add back into it because now you're getting less and less. And this, this process is not a flip the switch, we're done, but this batch move on. Getting that one batch could take four or five or six different attempts to get it into that 98% purity. Then it has to be lyophilized, which is just freeze-dried. Um. And, and then sold. <clears throat> and so I would go on the record as saying 95% of the peptide guys out there are buying stuff from China. Or they're buying it from a guy in the United States who says he's making it, but he's buying it from China. So they're one step away from the lie. So they could say, oh, well, we thought it was coming from the United States. We're buying it from this guy over here. He's inside the United States. He says he makes it. Nobody flies to these labs to see, well, let me see your recombinant technology lab. Let me see, you know, where do you uh, lyophilize these powders? Where do, you, where do you process them? Or let's see your amino acid sequences. And the truth is we're at a stage where no one really wants to know because they don't want to – because peptides are big business. Peptide – research peptide companies make hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. And nobody wants to go, oh, my God, we've been selling bad peptides all this time. Let's go out of business until we fix this. No, nobody wants to, wanted to do that. So that's one type of charlatan in the peptide segment. The other type of charlatan is people who talk out of their ass. They want to position themselves as peptide experts because they want to get a piece of this pie somehow. And the reality is that there are probably a handful of peptide experts out there, truly, that, that understand a variety of peptides as opposed to one that's in their, you know, insulin. So you're, you're a doctor who works in the diabetes segment. You understand insulin. That's a peptide. And so as a result of the charlatans, you have bad information being repeated, kind of like the 30 grams of protein is the most you could absorb or digest that started this show with Dr. Antonio. Uh, you have people that say an untruth. So they can position themselves as an expert, and then 10 other people repeat it, and then they repeat it enough where now all of a sudden it becomes like, oh, this is the truth. We're like, everybody says this. It must be true. So I saw a, um, a post the other day. It was actually on Instagram. I thought it was on Facebook, but it was on Instagram. 
and it was uh, about the uh, oral BPC peptide from DrSeeds.com. And some guy tagged a peptide uh, research peptide company in his thread and said, it can't work because BPC-157 has to be site-injected in order for it to work. And then the peptide guy he tagged said, thanks for tagging us. You got that right. And you don't have to be a peptide expert to apply critical thinking. If you know a little bit about BPC, you know that it's naturally produced, not the 157. The BPC-157 is synthetic, but BPC is naturally produced in the guts of humans. You produce BPC in your gut. And the role of BPC, body protection uh, compound, is exactly like it says. It's, it's a universal, like, go put the fire out, fix problems type of a peptide that works in conjunction with growth hormone. Um, one of the effects of BPC is it increases growth hormone receptors, the number of receptors on a cell, so that growth hormone can have double and triple the effect on fixing stuff. So it'll go to an injured area, and while it's starting to play job forming and fixing this, it'll also, let's think of receptors as flags, puts up more flags so growth hormone knows go there and fix that. And so the growth hormone can dock in multiple receptors on each cell and, and work faster. So growth hormone, so, so BPC is made in your gut, but yet it works all over your body. No one ever said that BPC is only effective in the gut. We know that BPC heals soft tissue, tendons, and stuff like that. It can affect chondrocytes and cartilage and and meniscus. And no one argues that. But if BPC-157 has to be site-injected, then that wouldn't be true. Excuse me. The BPC made in your stomach wouldn't fix anything but your stomach. And we already know that that's not the case. But let's look a little bit further at other, let's look at some other peptides. Uh, the pituitary is a ductless gland, right? It, it squirts out at the base of your skull, at the, at the base of your brain inside your skull, it, it squirts out growth hormone. Now, does that growth hormone only affect the local area? No. In my case, it probably did because my head is huge. So obviously growth hormone had a, a great localized effect on my body. But most people don't have gigantic heads and little bodies. Growth hormone makes its way to every tissue in the body. But it's but how can that be if it's produced up here? Like in this little area right here. How does it – well, we know that both uh, in uh, acromeglia, which is giantism, right, over, uh, overproduction of growth hormone in the pituitary, they end up with crowding in the joints. Uh, one of the things that growth hormone is really good at is helping to regenerate soft tissue, uh, like meniscus in, in between the joints and your hands and your wrists and your knees. And these poor people who suffer from acromeglia, they have what's known as joint crowding. You see them, they have bulging knuckles, bulging joints, their ankles, their elbows, everything is overgrown. So clearly that pituitary is producing a lot of growth hormone, but it's affecting other tissue in the body. But then when you look at injected growth hormone, you have bodybuilders that use 10, 15 IUs a day for periods of time. They inject it in their skin on their stomach. It affects their knees. It causes joint crowding in the knees. It causes their brows to grow, their heads to grow, their jaws to grow. So 
we know that these peptides, regardless of whether they are squirted into the body, where they originate, they get everywhere. Now, is there a value to site injection? Probably so. And, 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 and I recently was training legs, and I'm getting strong again. So my leg curls are as heavy as the machine goes. I think it's like 240 or 260 pounds. And I'm doing seated leg curls, and I do them the way Alex Leaf taught me. I slide all the way with just the balls of my ass on the seat so that the hamstring can contract from both ends instead of holding one part steady because I'm sitting on it. And I was doing uh, five sets, and my last set, I felt it. I was almost fully contracted, and I felt this burn, very reminiscent of when I tore my bicep. Uh, I felt this burn. I immediately let the weight fall, and I literally walked to my car and went home. And I got one milligram of BPC, and I injected it in the skin in the area where I felt the burn. I didn't inject it in the muscle, in the skin, in the area where I felt the burn. Uh, And that afternoon, my hamstring hurt. I had a hard time straightening my leg out. Walking was a problem. Stretching the leg out was a problem. It would hurt. But the next morning, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being no recovery at all, and I'm sorry, 1 being no recovery at all and 10 being completely healed, it was a 7. The amount of pain that I had was negligible. And I continued to inject one milligram for five total days straight in the skin, in the area where I felt this. Now, the second day, I did notice some bruising. So there was a little blood that escaped. I think I probably just tore a little bit of the muscle belly, just tore a little bit, a little blood squirted out. So there was some bruising. I went to the gym uh, Friday and I trained legs. I didn't use the normal weight I use. I used 50% of my normal weight, but I was able to do leg curls without any pain. Did BPC heal my hamstring? Absolutely. Did it heal it faster than it would have without BPC? Undoubtedly. It, it, I would have had this at least for a few weeks if it wasn't for BPC. And of course, I use growth hormone secretagogues too. So my growth hormone is higher than a guy my age, and it all works in conjunction. But did I have to side inject it? Probably not. I probably could have injected it in my stomach. And I've moved away from that. And I continue to inject it in my stomach ever since then. I just wanted, so the way peptides work is when they get into the bloodstream, they immediately start to search for receptors in the tissue closest to them. So all I was doing was expediting the BPC getting to that area of my body. It would have gotten there at some point in time after the injection had I chosen to inject it in my midsection as well. But I just felt like let it go right there and get to work first while it circles the rest of my body. Did that BPC injection that I gave myself in the area of my hamstring injury benefit the rest of the tissue in my body? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, if you apply critical thinking, you will never go wrong. You don't have to be a peptide expert. You don't even have to be a scientist. When people say stuff like that, oh, no, you've got to inject it here for it to work, ask yourself, where does that peptide reside in my body naturally, in my gut? Wow. Keep, keep in mind, we talked about BPC in 2014 with the Del Musa. Before anybody even knew what it was, we were talking about it. 
And we talked about how you can take it orally because it naturally occurs in the stomach, so the body treats it differently than a, another peptide. It actually allows you to absorb it through your stomach. And you can even squirt it under your tongue. If you get a syringe and you don't want to inject it, you can actually squirt a half a milligram under your tongue or a milligram under your tongue. It'll work. It'll get in. It'll work. But anyway, uh, the point being is if you apply critical thinking to a lot of these things, you, you find that you can sniff out the, the truth and the, and the falsehoods and you can avoid listening to people who don't know what they're talking about. I, I wrote a blog about this. It's, it's up now about BPC and site injections. And last week I wrote a blog about transdermal delivery of peptides. And so, you know, everybody's trying to put their peptides in transdermal delivery. You, you can't. If they are bigger than 500 Dalton and the sweet spot is 400 Dalton, you can deliver things through the skin. But once you start getting into the thousand or thousands of Dalton, the skin, it just stays on the outside of the skin. It's not getting in. And I think uh, thymus and beta-4 and BPC-157 are two popular, quote-unquote, transdermally delivered peptides that are not being delivered transdermally because they're both in like the 1400 and 1700 Dalton range. They're just not being delivered. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your money. You're wasting good peptides if they're real. So I'm going to keep talking about peptides as we move forward. We do, we do the, 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 the quintessential show on peptides, which is the pep talk. This Friday, I've got a doctor coming on who's treating autoimmune disease and Lyme disease with peptides successfully. She's going to come on my show and she's going to tell my audience how she treats these people, what works and what doesn't. And she gave the same presentation at the International Peptide Society uh, Symposium, teaching other doctors how to help people with Lyme disease and autoimmune disease uh, using peptides. So just keep your eye out. Uh, you know, you got you to gotta give everything the sniff test today when it comes to peptides because it's a new boom. Everybody wants to get into it. Everybody wants to make money at it. Everybody wants to appear as an expert in it. And everybody is willing to tell you misinformation if you will believe that they know what they're talking about. So just be careful of it. All right, so that's it. Tomorrow is the Blueprint Power Hour. Tune in then. Thanks for listening today. And pass this show around, and I'll tell you why. It's time for us to do away with these myths about protein. Uh, we don't eat enough protein. There's people out there going, oh, the reason for obesity is all the meat people eat. No, that's not why. That is absolutely not why. If you're eating, if you're eating a hamburger uh, and a Biggie Fry and a sugary soda and then some sort of confectionery pastry, it's not the meat that's making you fat. It's not. And we have to stop this lie in its tracks. Protein is not evil. People eat more protein, they'd actually get leaner. I right, see you tomorrow. Thank you for listening today.